Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that we need. We pray now that you would enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit who is here and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. If you're uh, new here visiting, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors. I'll be speaking from that passage, which was so wonderfully read by Alistair. And if you've got a church Bible, one of these, it's page eight, uh, sorry, 72, page 72, and we're looking at this song. Now, just imagine for a moment that we all started singing another song right now, but this song was actually about you. It was about you. We were naming you, and we're all singing this song about you. And I'm not talking about happy birthday. I mean a full-on hymn of praise to you. And this song that we sing, it's a summary of all the wonderful things that you've done and how much you mean to us and how we just adore you. And everybody joins in, and you're thinking, what's going on here? And then we lead you up to the front of this this uh, stage, and as you're coming through and everyone's singing, we're bowing down to you, and then we bring next to the shoutometer, we've got this, this chair that we've set up like a throne, and we bring you onto the throne, and we put a crown upon your head, and then Debbie gets a bunch of tambourines out and hands them out to the women, and all the women are playing the tambourine, whatever they do, and singing, and again, it's all about you. Does that sound a bit awkward? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> this is what the Bible says we human beings are to do for God. And this is exactly what's happening in Exodus chapter 15. It's the first song in the Bible. And it's a song that's based on experience of something that's just happened, an amazing rescue where they've been rescued from slavery and brought through the Red Sea on dry ground and saved from their enemies. And the waters of the sea have come back in and destroyed the enemy of a dictator, sorry, the army of a dictator who was going to take them. So it is a song of praise about rescue. It's a song of worship. Now, people do this in the Bible a lot, you know. They sing praises to God. They sing Actually, more than that, even more than that, the Bible teaches that God's purpose in creating the universe and making human beings and rescuing human beings is to get praise for himself. God is actively seeking glory from us. Already in Exodus chapter 9, we thought about this a few weeks ago, we heard this statement, I'll read it out, don't have to turn to it. Exodus 9, 16, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God wants glory, and that's the reason underneath the rescue. God is not blushing and embarrassed when we sing his praises. God is not going, oh, stop. He wants to hear our songs. He likes hearing them. He accepts our praise. He expects it. He even requires it. 
The Bible is full of commands to sing praises to God. Now, let's be honest about this for a moment, shall we? Does this make God sound a bit egotistical? If one of us did that, we would think they were a lunatic. Now, some people have reached this conclusion. They find the idea of God wanting praise one of the hard aspects of the Christian faith. And for some people, this is one of the obstacles to faith. They ask, isn't the idea that God wants glory basically egotistical and self-centered? And that is a very good question. And we love hearing questions here at King's Church and wrestling with them and working on them together. C.S. Lewis was a professor of English at uh, English literature at Cambridge University. Very smart man. He came to faith as an adult. And he pondered this question very deeply. And he wrote that it was a real struggle for him to accept the idea that we should praise God. In his mind, it came close to the, the horrible demand of a, a dictator or a, a kind of egotistical celebrity who insists on being surrounded by a crowd of admirers. But Lewis eventually had a breakthrough, and he realized it wasn't only right to praise God, but it was actually essential and beautiful. He gave three reasons for this, that praise is natural, praise is enhancing, and praise is fulfilling. Praise is natural, it's enhancing, it's fulfilling. Firstly, praise is natural. We all know that admiration is a fitting response, an appropriate response to something that is admirable. If something is admirable, you praise it. You, you look at it with admiration and you also tell other people about it. If we were to see a magnificent painting, if you went up to the, 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 one of the galleries in central London and saw one of the great masterpieces, we would praise it. It deserves our admiration. It actually demands our admiration in this sense. Our praise of it is a, is a correct response. If we fail to admire such a painting, says Lewis, we would be stupid, insensible, and great losers. We would have missed something. So praise is natural. And there are many things in life that inspire our admiration, aren't there? Mountains. Sunsets, splendid achievements in sport and athletics, fantastic music, delicious cooking, people of incredible talent, people who are drop-dead gorgeous. You praise them. Such things demand admiration from us. It's natural. But secondly, praise is actually enhancing Think about it for a moment here. How do we, Christian brothers and sisters here today, how do we experience God's presence in our lives? One of the richest times we experience God's presence is actually when we are together and we worship him together. It's not the only time, but it seems to be one of the main ones. Now, in the Old Testament, people would sacrifice something that was very valuable to them, uh, an animal, part of their, 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 their real estate. They would sacrifice, if they were poor, some, a dove or a couple of doves, if they were a bit richer, maybe a lamb or a goat, and a very high net worth people could sacrifice a bull. But they knew that by doing that, God would actually give himself to them. And the same thing is true of the Christian church. Have you ever found this? 
You come, you sing praise to God with your brothers and sisters, and something changes in you. Now, my life is full of doubts and struggles. I don't live on a permanent spiritual high. Often I come to church on Sunday, and I think, oh, my days. I don't feel I've got anything worth saying today, and I've still got to do it. Full of doubt, very weak. But it is when we are praising God together on a Sunday morning that things become clear to me once again. That I sense God's touch on my life. That my perspective is corrected. You know, the biggest reason I hate missing church isn't because I feel I'm obliged to go. It's like it's a duty. And, and it's not because I'm on the payroll. I used to go to church when I wasn't a pastor. Can you believe it? The biggest reason that I hate missing church is if I miss it, I miss out. I need you. So you could say the biggest reason is selfish. I'm going to miss out. I want to be here. I need you. Because when we praise together, praise is enhancing. It's helpful for me. It's clarifying. Praise is natural. Praise is enhancing. But the third thing is praise is fulfilling. Praise is fulfilling. All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise of something. Unless we're shy or we're afraid and we hold back. Here's, here's our friend C.S. Lewis again. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistress. Readers praising their favorite book. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather. Praise of wine. Praise of food. Praise of actors, cars, horses, Schools, countries, historical people, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians. I think he was going a bit far with the last one, but anyway. We all delight to praise what we enjoy. Why is this? Because the enjoyment is incomplete without the praise. The enjoyment is not complete without the praise. It's not enough for me to cook a meal and spend an hour or two trying to create a dish, which I've done this week. First time I got a recipe, you know, I got a recipe off the internet. We had some food and I prepared it. And it's not enough for me just to, just to cook it and serve it and eat it and really enjoy it. I also want to know, was it good? Not just for my, my fragile male ego, but because praise completes the experience. That was delicious. Thank you so much. It's not out of pain flattery that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It's frustrating to come around the corner and see a majestic view, a beautiful view in the countryside and have no one to share it with or a person who doesn't appreciate it with you. Praise completes, fulfills our enjoyment of something good. And the worthier the object, the more intense the delight would be. Now, when you look at it like that, praising God isn't merely a duty or a demand. It is also a delight. And God wants us to delight. It is as fitting for you and me to worship God as it is for a sunflower to turn its face towards the sun and bask in its glory 
all day long. And the first song in the Bible, Exodus 15, is a model for praise. It's a song recording. They sing about the rescue through the Red Sea that we thought about last week. This song doesn't really give us any new information about that rescue, but it does teach us how to sing. It shows us that song is an essential response to salvation, to being rescued. Songs of gratitude, songs of praise, songs of love, songs of worship are an essential response to being saved. We all sing, you know. Some of you sing in the shower. The postman whistling in the morning. The worker humming in the office. The football fans yelling, blue is the color. Coming from Manchester, I have to agree with you. Blue moon, you saw me standing alone. Without a care in my heart, without a love of my own. Blue moon! The teenager trilling Billie Eilish songs. The toddler singing, let it go, let it go. The parents singing, please let it go. We all sing. But the question is, whose song are we singing? Who do we praise? Do you praise him? Whose song are we singing? What should we sing? Exodus 15 shows us how to sing. Henry David Thoreau, American thinker, famously wrote, If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. God's people need to hear a different drummer in this world and step to the music of a different country. We need to step to the music we hear, the song of salvation. And Exodus 15 teaches us salvation's song. This song looks in four directions, not one direction. Four directions. It looks back. It looks up. It looks out. And it looks forward. One of these days I'm going to fall off this stage and you're all going to laugh. Salvation song looks back, verses 1 to 10. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver. He is hurled into the sea. It's looking back to the rescue. They rehearse and reflect on all that God has done for me. He's a warrior crushing his people's enemies. Verse 3, Yahweh, that's what that um, word in the capitals, Lord, really says underneath. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. God is a warrior. He's not a granddad in the sky. He's not Father Christmas, you know. The Bible just talks about the, the Lord as a warrior who fights and defeats his people's worst enemies. Now, we have to say that this is not what some Christians have, have tr tragically done in history and turned the ideas of the Bible into a, a, a holy war now, the Crusades. It's not that kind of thing. Biblical religion doesn't have a requirement to attack our enemies. What we're actually told to do is love our enemies. Because God is the one doing the fighting. He's the shield. He's the salvation. He's the one who takes up arms. This God is also the Savior. He rescues his people from slavery, from death, from misery. 
He's there for them. He sees their need. He hears their cry, their tears. He takes up their cause. Their plight is not far from him. He lets it into his great heart. He turns his attention to them. He throws himself into their rescue. He will not let them go. He will not let them be overwhelmed. Now, in this song, Exodus 15, it's not abstract. It's personal. He has become my savior. He has become my savior. So let me ask, can you sing that? Have you experienced this great God as the warrior fighting for you and the Savior coming for you? Have you grasped in your heart what Jesus Christ has done to defeat your worst enemies and to rescue you? Jesus was a warrior defeating those things that crushed you and took away your life. Jesus came to defeat your sin. Your sin is a slave master that robs you of your joy and takes away your light and freedom. Jesus came to save you from it. Jesus came to save you from your bondage to yourself, from being so self-obsessed that you get smaller and smaller and smaller and all your freedom and joy leaks away. Jesus came to take away your hopelessness, to defeat it. He has smashed it and given you a new hope. Jesus came to take away your isolation, your loneliness. He has loved you and brought you near and adopted you into his family. Jesus came to defeat your misery, your wretched feelings. Because he's loved you and he loves you so much, his love is everlasting and he gave himself for you. So in the eyes of the most important person of the universe, you are adored. Christian friend. Jesus is a warrior. Now, have you felt the touch of the Holy Spirit on your heart, even just now, bringing something there to life? Have you heard the word of God and realized, you know, Jesus Christ did all of that for me? Do you know enough to look back and celebrate? But you know, if we only sang about what God has done for us, we wouldn't be worshipping him fully because there's more. It is Mother's Day today, as you've already heard. Just think of a child who only praises his mother for what she's done for him. Mum, I praise you because you make my packed lunch. That wouldn't be true in our house, would it? <laughs> Mum, I praise you because you got my big brother to make my packed lunch. Mum, I praise you because you always listen to me. Mum, I praise you because you washed my clothes yet again, even though some of them were put in the clothes basket and they weren't even dirty. That annoys me. You know, and of course, all those things that Mum has done are beautiful and good and praiseworthy. But we don't want to just stop there. We also want to praise Mum for who she is. Mum, I thank you that you're so loving. Mama, thank you that you're so understanding. Mama, thank you that you're so wise. Mama, thank you that you care. You're so tender with me. Mom. And, and so praise doesn't just look back at what he's done. Praise looks up in adoration. Secondly, verse 11 to 13, praise looks up. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? 
majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. This song moves to an awe-inspired adoration of God just for who he is. Just for who he is. He's incomparable. He is peerless. There's no one else like him. He's the best. He's majestic in holiness. That means he's kingly, like the greatest king that's ever lived. But he's holy, not self-serving like many kings. He's awesome in his glorious deeds. It carries on. You stretch out with your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you've redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. His deeds of creating the world, of ruling the world, of saving the world. He works wonders. He is altogether wonderful. Notice, the song's perspective is that it sees the world through new eyes. It sees the world through new eyes. In this song, it's not the east wind that blew the Red Sea back. It was the blast from God's nostrils. I'm not going to do an impression of that, okay, for the benefit of the front row. It wasn't the east wind. It was God's nostrils. It's not the arms of Moses that were raised up with the staff. It was the mighty hand of God. Now, We know that God used the strong wind and God used the hand of Moses and the staff, but the singers have new eyes. They see the reality behind the physical. They see the hand of God at work in the the world. They see the hand of God, the hidden hand of God at work in their own lives, and they just love him for it. Now, we will need much time in prayer and quiet meditation on God's word if we are going to get these new eyes. This is a long-term re-education project. You will spend the rest of your life doing it. There has never been a time in history, I think, where so many voices are pressing in and so many songs are pressing into our minds and we have our earbuds in, we can't hear anything, we've got our music, and our minds and our affections and our emotions are filled with all these voices and all these songs and many of us are also so tainted by the culture around that we can't really see God's hand at work. We need to refocus, friends. We need to recenter, to concentrate our minds and our hearts on the Lord if we're going to get a heart that really adores Him. And that means stop running. You're too busy. Some of you are too busy in Christian service. Find a time to stop, sit, be silent in his presence. Be still and know that he is God. He will be exalted among the nations. We need the song to reorientate us so that we march to a different drummer. What's on your playlist What songs fill your head from Monday to Saturday? How can you make sure you're marching to the tune set by Jesus Christ? And you know, this song, we thought about how it looks back. It also looks up. It also, it's not just for the faith community. The song isn't just 
an in-house song for the people of God. It's also for the nations. Because the third thing the song does is look out. Look out. The third dimension of praise is thinking about the impact of this great God on the world around. Look at verse 14. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Eden will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be still as a stone until your people pass by, until the people you bought pass by. See, praise is not just about me, not just about us. It's also about everyone. Praise looks out to the whole world, to the nations. And the recounting, the reliving of God's praises should have an impact on the world around, the people around us. Now, in this passage, the people that are being impacted are God's enemies. They're the ones that are going to attack and try and destroy the people of Israel on their way to the promised land. But many of these people will then eventually be taught. The Bible will say they will come and join. They will come and join God's people. Because God loves the whole world. When we live lives of praise to Jesus, others will see and be curious. They will be skeptical at first, of course. But some will be drawn to the warmth of our praise like lost children coming out of the woods to the warm home fire. In this song at the sea, the nations are led to fear and acknowledge God. And this too is part of worship, that there will be more and more worshippers. And I don't mean primarily Sunday worship where we gather for an hour and a half in the morning and an hour in the evening. I mean whole life worship where everything in life goes in for Jesus. So let's ensure that our lives of praise are visible to the world around, that we don't hide our light under a bucket and mute our praise so much because we're afraid of disapproval or rejection. Sing it out. Let's raise up the name of Jesus this week. Wherever we are, in the school classroom, at work, in the office, in the garden, in the hospital, among the other parents over coffee, at the pub, in the shops, in our homes, ready to speak his praise and, and just to say naturally how good it is for what he's done for me. So the song looks back. It looks up. It looks around, looks out. But fourthly, there's a fourth direction. This song looks forward in anticipation to the future that God will bring. Verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The song looks forward to a place that we can finally call home. The world we all want. The promised land. The future. These people in Exodus have been rescued from a terrible slavery. And they've been brought through as a new creation. Waters have been separated. Dry land has been created. The wind or the spirit of God has come and brooded over the waters. And now a new people is brought through 
to go to a new Eden, paradise. And the enemies have been buried in the chaos waters, a new creation. And these people are now, they're on a journey home. They belong to a better country. They look forward to a city with foundations. They're going home. On the 6th of February, 1999, I knelt down by a river, the River Avon with a diamond ring in my pocket and asked a young woman to marry me. She was the first one I'd asked. <laughs> Thankfully, she said yes. That ring was a pledge of my good intentions, and she wore it from that day on. A date was set, 14th of August. We spent six months in eager anticipation to be married at last. Now, marriage is a great blessing from God. It is a privilege to have a companion. But we all know, if we're real, that even the best marriages have their limits. <laughs> so I've heard. <laughs> that cackle really got me there. If you don't know, that's my wife. Here's the thing. Human marriage is not ultimately fulfilling, is it? Not ultimately. It's not what we were made for. It's not the consummation devoutly to be wished for. At its best, on the best day, human marriage is a picture. A lot of people, when they get married, have a cake, all those layers, and at the top, they often have two little figures of a bride and a groom, a lovely little picture of what's going on. Well, the best of human marriages is just like two little scale pictures of what is the real marriage is all about, and that is about the marriage between God and his people at the end of time. That's what marriage is really pointing to. That's the real marriage where we will all be ultimately completely fulfilled in ways that we can now no, not even imagine. We will be united with the Lord, and the old order of things will pass away so much so that we won't remember it. There will be no more sorrow. Whew. Maybe you need to hear that today. There will be no more depression. There will be no more anxiety. There will be no more mourning and tears. There will be no more sickness. All of that will be gone. And until that day, we sing in anticipation of it. Our songs are future-focused too. Now that's Moses and his sister Miriam and the Israelites. What about us? What song does the church of Jesus Christ have to sing? What's our song? Dare I say it, we have an even better one. Amen? We've been rescued from the Egypt of our slavery to sin and self and brought through the sea. We're en route to a new and better country the home where righteousness dwells, where heaven and earth come back and are joined together. We have participated, Christians, in an act of God far, far greater than the Exodus deliverance because the work of Jesus Christ is the climactic act of God's deliverance. What do we celebrate? The birth of Jesus, his humble, astonishing entry into our lives, taking on our humanity, our flesh, in complete solidarity with us. He's by your side because of his incarnation. 
the life of Jesus, his passionate, kind, loving, holy, strong, tender, gracious life. The life, the kind of life we should have lived but we didn't do. The death of Jesus, willingly, boldly going to the cross of agony and shame and laying down his life for his people, the strong for the weak to bring us to God. He was our Passover lamb led to the slaughter. The resurrection of Jesus in which he crushed and destroyed death, our greatest enemy, and gave us a rock on a guarantee of a life to come that will never end, united with him. And the ascension of Jesus. He rose and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. That's the place of power and authority. He's enthroned. He reigns. He sends his spirit to build the church and take the good news to the nations with this promise. Truly, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's our song. That's our song. This week, will you sing it? Let's pray. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. Amen. Amen.